Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, Sharon presents Part 1 of the Gospel of Luke, Chapters 20 and 21. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. The authority of Jesus is questioned tonight. One day, he, Jesus, was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up and said to Jesus, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? So they're really directly questioning his authority. Where do you get off? That's what they're asking. (laughs) Jesus was teaching in the temple. Remember, he had cleared the temple last week in Luke 19. He's preaching the gospel, the good news of salvation. And the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders come up to Jesus. Now, let's review this question of authority. Let's just take Luke's gospel, what we've heard so far. At age 12, he's preaching in that same temple. He's found in that temple, Luke tells us. He's sitting among teachers, listening to them, asking questions. And all who heard Jesus were amazed. They were astounded at the understanding and his answers. And from there, Jesus only increased more. He increased in wisdom. He increased in stature. He increased in favor with God and with man. So this 12-year-old kid is back in the temple again. And people last week, remember, it said they were hanging on his every word. So he has an amazing authority, an amazing charisma. People just are hanging on his word, and he teaches with authority. I looked up in the dictionary, what is authority? It's the right to exercise power, the right, either in governance or in an ecclesiastical way, a priestly appointed representative of a God, little g God, or deities. Well, we know there's no little g God or deities. He is the appointed representative of the one true and only God, the God of Israel. And some synonyms for authority are power, jurisdiction, command, control, mastery, charge, dominance, dominion, rule, sovereignty, supremacy. He has authority like they have not seen. And they want to know, where did you get it? Where did you get this authority? Why do you have authority over us, the chief scribes, the the, the, the elders? Remember back in Luke 4, when the devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And in a moment of time, and he said to you, Jesus, to you, I, Satan, will give all the authority and the glory that has been delivered to me. I can give it to whomever I will. If you then will worship me, it'll all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. He knows who has the authority. It comes from his father. We saw him drive unclean spirit out of a man in Luke 4. And all who saw were astonished at his teaching for his word was with authority. They just hadn't seen anything like this. Even the demons were subject to it. Oh, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? We know who you are, the one true God. Jesus rebuked them. He had authority over those demons. He said, be silent, come out of him. And they had no choice but to obey his authority. They were all amazed. And they said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands unclean spirits and they come out. They hadn't seen anything like this. Remember when the paralytic dropped in one day? Remember that? (laughs) And when he saw it, and he saw their faith, and he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. 
And he had come there for healing of his body, his paralyzed body, but he says, your sins are forgiven you, and only God has the authority to forgive sin. And they know that. So the scribes and the Pharisees began to question him, and they said, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And when Jesus perceived their questionings because he could read their hearts, he said, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? Because he had the authority to do both, and he knew forgiving sin would be a higher degree of faith. He wants to walk. If I forgive his sins and he can walk, it's, it's a higher degree of authority. Only God can forgive sin. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. Something that only God could do. He said to the paralyzed man, I say to you, rise up, take your bed, and go home. Now, he alone has the authority to forgive sin, God. And now Jesus Christ, Son of the Father, is forgiving sin. And he will come into that room, that locked room, on the night of the resurrection. And he will breathe the Holy Spirit on ten apostles. Thomas isn't there. Judas isn't there. He will breathe the Holy Spirit and give them that same authority to forgive sin, something only God can do. If you forgive the sin of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sin of any, they are retained. A new priesthood, a new covenant in his blood, and now giving them the authority to forgive sin, something only God could do. That you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin, and he's giving it to the ten apostles there that night. A fullness of restoration of the divine order, number ten. Back to the paralyzed man. He has been forgiven of his sin. He jumps up, picks up his mat, runs home, glorifying God. Everybody's amazed. Everyone's filled with awe. And they say, we have seen strange things today. And then you know the centurion's faith. And this was a man who understood authority. He understands the authority Jesus has. And he says, Lord, do not trouble yourself. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. He sends word, servants to tell him that. We say it at mass every time. I didn't presume to come to you. Just say the word and and my servant will be healed. Because the centurion understands authority. I too am a man under authority. My soldiers come and go, I get it. I get it. You have the authority. And Jesus marveled at the centurion's faith. And he said, I tell you, not in all of Israel have I found such great faith as this Roman centurion. That infuriated them. Remember when he sent the 12 out on mission in Luke chapter 9, he called together 12. He gave them power and what? Authority over demons and to cure disease. So they go out. He has given them this power, this authority, and it works. And then he sends out 70. And when they come back, the 70 return with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. This authority is working. They're amazed. Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread over serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. That's great authority. And St. Paul tells the Romans, there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So we are in a church. We call the four markers of the Catholic Church. One, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And I want to talk tonight where the authority comes. It's an apostolic authority. It's an apostolic authority that comes from the one true and only God. And we have the Nicene Creed. We say it every Sunday at Mass. It's called Nicene because it came from the city of Nicaea. It's modern-day Isnik, Turkey. In 325 AD, 325 years later, in 381, that Nicene Creed gets amended in Constantinople at the First Council, and it's called the Niceno-Constantinople Creed or the Nicene Creed. It's the one we say today. 
Now, USA, our country, we're going to be 243 years old this July. 243 years old. That's it. The creed, it took 381 years to just get it down on paper, to just all agree on the Nicene Creed. Okay? So what happened from 1 AD to 381 AD? Our country's only 243 years old. Do you remember what happened in 10? In 15, 20, 30? I mean, what happened all that time up to this creed? Well, there was apostolic succession, apostolic authority handed on from Jesus. We see saints like Ignatius of Antioch. He was born in 35. He died in 107. Polycarp, he was born in 69, died in 156. They're both disciples, followers of St. John the Evangelist. St. Polycarp of Smyrna, St. Ignatius of Antioch, disciples of St. John, both become ordained bishops from an apostle. It was St. John who ordained Polycarp, and Polycarp was consecrated by John himself before John is banished to the island of Patmos, where he writes Revelation, and Polycarp is martyred. He is an 86-year-old bishop, and they burn him alive. Can you imagine? 86 years old, and when his body is in the flames, it gives off the most amazing sweet fragrance, and it smells like baking bread, because he loved the Eucharist so much. 86 years old. The proconsul urged Polycarp, swear, swear, and I will set you at liberty. I'll set you free. Just reproach Christ. But Polycarp denied, 86 years I have served Christ, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The other one, St. Ignatius of Antioch, he was fed to the lions in the Colosseum in Rome. And, you know, Daniel 6, Daniel's put down in the lion's den, and in the morning he comes out because an angel, an angel of the Lord was sent to shut the mouth of the lions and protect him. But not so for Ignatius of Antioch. The lions tore him to shreds in front of screaming people in the Colosseum. And you'll see pictures all over Rome when they have lions and they're tearing someone apart. That's St. Ignatius of Antioch. It was in 107 AD during the reign of the brutal emperor Tasian, where Bishop St. Ignatius of Antioch was sentenced to death because he refused to renounce his faith in Jesus Christ. He was taken by guard to Rome where he was publicly executed by being devoured by wild beasts. St. Ignatius was not afraid to die because he knew Christ had defeated death. He wrote to the disciples in Rome, permit me to imitate my suffering God. I am God's wheat and I shall be ground by teeth of the beast that I may become the pure bread of Christ. So like Polycarp who loved the Eucharist and smelled like baking bread as he's martyred, he wants to be ground into wheat and made into bread. These are so Eucharistic. They love the Eucharist. The blood of the martyrs is what seeded the church. It spread like wildfire. They thought they would stop it. They thought they would squelch it out, but it, it fanned the flame and spread Christianity across the world. During his journey from Antioch to Rome to be martyred, Bishop Ignatius wrote seven letters, seven epistles to encourage, to instruct, to inspire the Christians in the communities along the way. And we still have the text of those letters today. They've been translated. You can buy them on Amazon. The epistles outline the Orthodox Christian faith. And in them, we find the word Catholic for the first time being used to describe the whole church. It's early before 107. These letters connect us to the early church and to the unbroken, clear teaching of the apostles, which was given to them directly from Jesus Christ. So we have an authority of apostolic succession. Eusebius in the fourth century writes that Ignatius was chosen to serve as Bishop of Antioch, succeeding Evodias. And Theodore of Cyrus wrote that it was St. Peter himself that left directions that Ignatius be appointed to the Episcopal See of Antioch. 
So there was very early on an early chain of authority, a chain of command, a structure to the church. You had to be ordained a priest. St. Paul ordains Timothy. He tells him in 2 Timothy 4, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophetic utterance when the elders laid their hands upon you. St. Timothy went on to become the Catholic Bishop of Ephesus, and he died in 97 AD. He was 80 years old when uh, he was preaching the gospel, and they were worshiping in the town of Ephesus, the goddess Diana. While he's preaching the gospel, the angry pagans beat him and drug him through the cities and stoned St. Timothy to death. There were ordained deacons very early in the church. Acts chapter 6, the first deacons. In the days when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists, the Greeks, murmured against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution, care of the widows. The 12 apostles summoned the body of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, pick out from you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Saint Stephen. He becomes a martyr in Acts chapter 7. But the word of God increased. The numbers of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, he's ordained a bishop and eaten by the lions in 107, but his letters give us many clues about the first Catholic theology. His letters include very important topics in ecclesiology, sacraments, the role of bishops, and he, the one that was elected by St. Peter to become a bishop. And this correspondence, these seven letters, become part of a later collection known as the Apostolic Fathers. So if you want to know your roots, you have to read the Apostolic Fathers. And here is his letter to the Magnesians, just taking a few snippets of a couple letters to show you. But Ignatius is the earliest known Christian writer to emphasize loyalty to a single bishop in each city or diocese who assisted by both presbyters, which were priests, and deacons. Earlier writings only mentioned bishops and priests, but then later by Acts 6, they had added deacons. For instance, this is one of his snippets to the Magnesians. Take care to do all things in harmony with God, with the bishop presiding in the place of God, and with the presbyters in the place of the council of the apostles, and with deacons who are most dear to me, entrusted with the business of Jesus Christ, who was with the Father from the beginning and is at last made manifest. To the Smyrnians, he uses the word Catholic here for the first time. It's a Greek word, Catholicos, which means universal, complete, whole, describing the whole church. Whenever the bishop appears, there let the people be, as whenever Jesus Christ, there is the Catholic church. It is not lawful to baptize or give communion without the consent of the bishop. On the other hand, whatever has his approval is pleasing to God. Thus, whatever is done will be safe and valid. Validity was important, a valid priesthood was important, the authority of the bishop was important. Early, early. And so from this Greek word, Catholicos, comes the word Catholic. And Ignatius wrote, we know before 107, because that's when he died, and he used that word Catholic as if it were already a word used to describe the church. Scholars think that word was used as early as the last quarter of the first century. So if you think of the temple being destroyed in 70 AD, then the last quarter, they started using the word Catholic already. He also said about the Eucharist, Ignatius of Antioch wrote this to the Smyrnians. 
Take note of these who hold heterodox opinions on the grace of Jesus Christ, which has come to us, and see how contrary their opinions are to the mind of God. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ, flesh which suffered for our sins and which the Father in his goodness raised up again. They who deny the gift of God are perishing in their disputes. So these men were martyred for heresies. They were martyred defending the faith. They were martyred defending the Eucharist. They were martyred defending the episcopacy. In his letter to the Christians in Rome, he says, do nothing to prevent my martyrdom. He too was not afraid to die. He had authority. We do not plant churches in the Catholic Church. It all comes from an apostolic authority. There are over 40,000 different Christian denominations now. People think they have the authority to just start a new church, plant a new church, plant one here, plant one there. That's not what scripture says. Paul tells the Ephesians, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope and belong to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of us all, who is above all and through all and in all. So apostolic succession, authority through apostolic succession. What is that? It's the line of bishops stretching back to the 12 apostles in an uninterrupted transmission of spiritual authority to the apostles through successive bishops and popes. So Jesus had 12 apostles. Before they die, they ordain a bishop and the 12 apostles leave a bishop as successor. Thus, all priests ordained by bishops in the apostolic succession are also part of this succession. Luke also writes Acts. And as early as Acts 1, they know they need to replace Judas. There has to be 12. That's an office of the church, the apostolic office. What are the criteria they're looking for? They spell it out. Men who have accompanied us during that time that the Lord Jesus went in and out of us, beginning from his baptism with John till the day he was taken up, the day he ascended back to the right hand of the Father. And this man must be a witness to the resurrection with us. So they cast lots, which was a priestly thing to do, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was enrolled with the 11 as the 12th apostle. The testimony of the early church is unanimous for apostolic succession. And many wrote about the belief that the apostles had handed on to the authority of others, and it was the most frequently and most fiercely defended doctrines in the first century of Christianity. This ensured the validity of the priesthood, the validity of the Eucharist, the validity of the sacraments. So today, Jesus is being questioned about his authority by the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Tell us, by what authority do you do these things, or who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them. I will ask you a question. Now you tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Well, remember the throngs of people that were going out to see John in the desert. What did you go out to the desert to see? He's baptizing. And he even baptized Jesus and the clouds ripped open and the father, the voice was heard. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit rested on him. Well, they were discussing this. They didn't know how to answer. If we say it's from heaven, then he's going to say, why did you not believe him? But if we say it's from men, then all the people are going to stone us because they're convinced that John's a prophet. What are we going to do? So they keep calm and they plead the fifth. (laughs) They don't say a word. They answered that they didn't know. They didn't know what it was. That's a first for them. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. John was Jesus' cousin. Jesus must have been remembering how they beheaded him because he spoke the truth to Herod and Herodias that they were living in sin. These guys didn't. They stayed silent. Jesus began to tell the people this parable then, and he does this always to teach a lesson. A man planted a vineyard 
and let it out to tenants and went to another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants that they should give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. Him also they beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And so he sent yet a third, and this one they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. It may be that they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, God forbid. I wanted you to hear that in one setting because it's good to hear the scripture orally. But we have a story here about a beautiful vineyard. And this hails back to Isaiah 5 when we studied Isaiah. We heard a song about Israel, the unfruitful vineyard. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted the choicest of vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewn out a wine vat. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done? When I expected it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove the hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down the wall. It shall be trampled down. I will make waste. It will not be pruned or hoed. It shall be overgrown with briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds and they will put no rain upon it. Thus says the Lord, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, a cry. So Israel was God's vine. God planted Israel to be a fruitful and faithful vine. In the scriptures, she's called a vine a lot. Israel self-identified as being God's choicest vine, God's vine that would spread throughout the entire world. You know how the tendrils go and the vine spreads. If Israel the vine bore the fruit of holiness, so all the people of the world would then come to know the one true God of Israel. And all the nations would come under God's canopy and God's beautiful vineyard and drink Eucharistic wine, right? Forever, all people, all Abraham's children, all nations would one day be gladdened by the fruit of abundance. God expected the vine of Israel to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Israel was often referred to as a degenerate vine in the Old Testament. Instead of a well-ordered, fruitly, wonderful vineyard, Israel was wilting. She was becoming diseased and decayed, producing very little fruit, wild, sour, inconsistent fruit, overgrown, so wild and unproductive, unkept, hardened, brittle, in need of severe pruning and nourishment. Israel was basically dying on the vine. It looks as though Israel needed a new vine, a true vine, a John 15 vine, Jesus Christ, who would be the vine of a new covenant. So God sent prophets, one after another, after another, after another, as his messengers, like Jeremiah, who said, I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? I don't even know you. So today we hear this parable in Luke that Jesus tells a man, and we know the man is God, planted a vineyard and lent it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. Who is the man who planted that vineyard? God. 
Often he's called the husbandman of the vineyard and husbandman, a husbandman. That's really what the Lord was to Israel when he married the nation on top of Sinai in Exodus 19. He is the husbandman of this vine, a man God planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went away for a long time. Who are the tenants? Who are the tenants of the vineyard? Each and every religious leader, the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leader, a man God planted a vineyard, lent it out to the religious leaders and went off to a faraway country. And when the time came, he sent, God sent a servant to the tenants. Who's the servant? The prophets. The servants are each and every prophet that God sent. And when the time came, he, God, sent a servant, the prophet, to the tenants, the religious leaders, that they should give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants, the religious leaders, beat him, the servant prophet. They sent him, the servant prophet, away empty-handed, no fruit of the laborers. God sent his servants, the prophets, with messages from God over and over and over. The servants were God's mouthpiece. At my church, St. Margaret Mary's in Omaha, the prophets are painted on the back wall. And so I love to sit there and pray and, and think of the 12 prophets and their different messages over the many years that God sent. But the leaders of the Jewish religion who were supposed to help harvest a bountiful produce, souls for the kingdom of God, they were the religious leaders. Now, who are today's religious leaders that have the same task to help harvest a bountiful produce of souls for God's kingdom? The religious leaders today of the vineyard are the bishops, the priests, the deacons, the ordained ministers who God has put in charge to harvest an abundance of souls. This is what the Pope said. The world's bishops are called to be servants and shepherds who use their position to care for people and the faith, not to seek power and boost their pride. Pope Francis said, the church has no place for men with a worldly mentality who are seeking a career. It's sad when you see a man who seeks this office and who does so much to get there. And when he makes it, he doesn't serve, but struts around like a peacock living only for his own vanity. The Pope said. The Pope continued a series of talks on the nature of the church, focusing on the Holy Spirit's gift of the ordained ministries, especially the role of the bishop. The catechesis began with a reading from St. Paul's letter to Titus, in which St. Paul lists the virtues that the bishop must hold and the vices that he must avoid, such as arrogance, irritability, and greed. We all heard that, right? The Pope said, looking around and smiling at the bishops who were in attendance. It's not easy to live up to St. Paul's advice because we are sinners. But we trust in your prayers, so at least we can move closer to these ideals, he told the pilgrims. Through the church's ordained ministers, it is Christ who makes himself present and continues to care for his church, guaranteeing his protection and guidance, the Pope said. So back to the parable of the vineyard, back to the tenants in the vineyard, the leaders, the religious leaders, God sent another prophet. And they also, the religious leaders, beat and treated shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. We hear about these prophets in Hebrews 11. We hear about some of the things they went through. They followed the judges, the prophets who in faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, received promises, stopped the mouths of lions, etc., etc. Some suffered mocking, scourging, chains, imprisonment. Some were stoned. Some were sawn in two. We know that's Isaiah. Then God sent a third prophet, and this one they wounded and cast out. I thought of John the Baptist there, the final prophet that was mortally wounded. He was beheaded. Priest, prophet, and king. Jesus would be the final priest, prophet, and king. The owner of the vineyard, God said, what shall I do? Oh, I have an idea. I'll send my beloved son, Jesus. They will respect him. 
That was part one of the Gospel of Luke, chapters 20 and 21, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.